Judges in corporate pockets. Entrenched structural racism. Rubber stamping bad decisions. Legitimizing police lies. The American court system has always been flawed, but never more than now. The judiciary, lawyers, and elected officials have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, yet they're silent about dark money capturing the courts. We won't be. You're listening to May It Displease the Court. We are back for another episode of May It Displease the Court, a podcast that questions just exactly who the court system is working for. Other than the Trump administration, obviously. Yeah, I can't. Thank God we're doing something besides Trump today because I'm just so over it. Mary, do you want to say hi? Yes. Hi, I am Mary. I'm a lawyer and I'm reminding you all that I'm a mom podcasting from home in my closet during naps in case you hear my baby cry. (laughs) And I'm Lee. I am an academic. Uh, I'm a rhetorician specifically. I study public speech and persuasion. And I'm not actually on today's episode. There were just you know, so there's so many fabulous personalities today that I thought that I would bow out and give a little more stage time to everyone. But I did want to come on, introduce the episode, and remind everyone to find us uh, on Twitter at Court Pod. Give us a follow, give us a shout out about your episode, and we will follow back. Today's episode is really special. It's um, looking at a microcosm of the police brutality happening around the country that hits very close to home. Specifically, we're talking about the death of Daniel Prude, a black man killed by police back in March. Uh, But the protest didn't erupt until September after Mr. Prude's family released just this shocking police body camera footage of his fatal encounter with the police. In response, of course, uh, Black Lives Matter activists and protesters took to the streets and the police reacted with absolute shocking levels of violence. We are returning uh, to this particular case in part because it hits close to, clo- uh, hits close to home. Um, Mary is uh, formerly from Rochester. It's where we met. I am now living in Rochester, and she still does appellate work for the state of New York. And our two other guests, which Mary will introduce, are also Rochester located. But we also wanted to look at a specific case of police brutality, um, protester rights, and Black Lives Matter, as well as just you know some of the police brutality happening against Black men and women, because... It's one thing to see it on the TV, and it's one thing to understand that it's kind of happening at different places across the country, but it's easy to say, oh, it was this one person, or oh, it was this unique circumstance. But in fact, it's part of a pattern of violence and civil rights violations, and it's just shocking to see it happen where you live, when you recognize the names of officers, activists, and attorneys, and you really do understand what Martin Luther King Jr. once said, which is that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, right? What happened here could happen anywhere. And the police and government response is, you know, that is part of a system of violence. It's not just localized. We're also going to be discussing your rights as a protester, Mm -hmm. the charges you could face for standing up for civil rights. And I cannot stress this enough. If you are arrested, ask for a lawyer and stop answering police questions. Yes, absolutely. All right. Stay tuned for the interview. Today, we have not one, but two award-winning defense attorneys. We have brought back friend of the pod, Don Thompson. If you haven't already, you can hear more from Don on episode five, Innocent Then, quote, Proven Guilty, Wrongful Conviction Exoneration. To reintroduce Don, he is the managing partner of the firm Easton Thompson Kasparik and Schifrin, located in Rochester, New York. He is an award-winning defense attorney with over 30 years of experience doing trial and appellate work in state and federal courts, even the Supreme Court, although they are losing their shine these days. Don's post-conviction work has resulted in the exoneration and release from custody of five defendants who were wrongfully convicted, which is a really 
big deal. Joining us today for the first time is Jill Paperno. She is the first assistant public defender for the Monroe County Public Defender's Office in Rochester, New York, where she's represented indigent defendants for over 30 years, handling mostly violent felonies and drug offenses. She's a, she's a contributor to the New York Criminal Defense blog, um, newyorkcriminaldefense.blogspot.com. She is the author of the book, Representing the Accused, Practical Guide to Criminal Defense. She also wrote a chapter in the book, Strategies for Defending Sex Crimes, Leading Lawyers on Understanding the Current Sex Crimes Environment and Building a Thorough Defense. We will put the link to those, the Amazon link, in our show notes. Jill has received several awards, and in 2017, she was given the New York State Defenders Association's Wilfred R. Connor Award, which is given to a dedicated public defender who exemplifies a client-centered sense of justice, persistence, and compassion. These are the lawyers we want to hold up um, the way we want to practice, um, and we want to shine lights on all of their work. So welcome back, Don, and welcome, Jill. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. First, um, I'm going to summarize briefly, well, not so briefly, uh, for our listeners, what happened to Daniel Prude, kind of give the, some timeline of events, um, what the police did, what the government's response was, um, and then we're going to you know, continue on with our conversation. So who was Daniel Prude? Well, he was a 41-year-old black man from Chicago who went to Rochester to visit his brother Joe in March of 2020. He was not doing so well mentally. He was having a crisis really on the train. He was, you know, kicked off in Buffalo. His brother drove out there to get him. And he was so concerned about his brother that he took him to uh, a Rochester hospital for an evaluation, for a mental health evaluation, because he was a danger to himself. Now, just hours later, the hospital released Daniel and just released him called up his brother, told him that they released him. And his brother was incredulous. He's like, how could you release him? How was he not admitted he was hurting himself? Now, at 3 a.m., uh, Joe, his brother, called 911 after Daniel ran out of his house. He was had an undershirt on, long johns. He had no shoes. It was absolutely freezing. If you're not familiar with Rochester, New York, in March, it's frigid. Um, you know, below freezing temperatures. And so he's running out there without his shoes on. He's, he's um, having uh, a mental health crisis and he had uh, apparently ingested some PCP, which is a hallucinogenic drug. So Joe called the police asking for help to help find his brother. A tow truck driver also called the police reporting seeing a naked man running in the street who is bloody. Now, internal police documents have revealed that the officers knew this. They knew that they were going on what would they would consider to be a mental hygiene case. They were not looking for somebody who'd committed a crime, um, but somebody who needed help for uh, you know, a mental health episode. And within minutes, they located they located Daniel, and he was naked. And they ordered him to lie on the ground on his stomach, which he did. One of the officers pointed a taser at him, um, saying, you know, chill out, man, don't move. And Officer Mark Vaughn handcuffed him without incident at around 3.16 a.m. The officers didn't then call for um, any mental health professionals. They didn't put him in the car. They didn't give him a blanket. You know, mind you, he's naked in March, in the middle of the night, laying on the frozen pavement. 
They then stood around him. He's making uh, delusional comments. He's not obviously not well. And, uh, you know, video footage, body camera footage show, show them smiling and laughing. And then he just sits upright and starts yelling, spitting, saying he's got coronavirus, according to the body cam footage. Um, and then an officer comes at him from behind and puts what's, what they call a spit sack over his head, um, which then made him more upset, more panicked. And this is when the encounter, which was supposed to be a, a, a compassionate help for someone in mental distress, turned deadly. The body cam footage shows that one officer pressed Mr. Prude's hooded head down onto the pavement. Uh, Another one pressed down on his back. A third officer pinned his legs. Mr. Prude was pleading to be let up. He was struggling to breathe. His words became more like sounds like gurgling, and then he stopped. And after about two minutes, he was no longer moving or speaking, and an officer was like, you good man? But by that point, Mr. Prude was in cardiac arrest. They called the paramedics. They arrived. Mr. Prude had no heartbeat. They began CPR. They revived him, but he was in critical condition, and they took him to the hospital where uh, they found out that his brain was was uh, damaged after being deprived of oxygen, and after a week of being on life support, his family took him off life support, and he died. The Monroe County Medical Examiner ruled that Mr. Prude's death was a homicide caused by complications of asphyxia um, in the setting of a physical restraint, which was also, um, I think, a contributing effect was his excited, quote, excited delirium um, caused by intoxication by PCP. That was a contributing factor to his death, but that it was the physical restraint, which which is what caused his death. Now, there was a a rumor amongst the uh, police officers that he had died of a drug overdose. That's kind of what people thought. And this case, which happened in March, didn't get any attention. And, you know, people didn't know people didn't know anything about it. And the family was looking for answers and they were trying to figure out what happened. And they were asking for the body cam footage. Um which was being resisted, that giving that footage over was being resisted by the police department and uh, by the city attorney. Um, and there's that's the subject of much controversy um, as to whether or not there was a cover-up between the police and the city officials involving possibly even all the way up to the mayor, uh, which is uh, really this whole situation has kind of torn apart um, Rochester and the citizens and has, you know, reignited some very serious protests. Um, And so I really wanted to bring in you know, attorneys that are kind of on the, the, the front lines of what's been going on. And we'll, you know, kind of as we have our, you know, larger discussion, um, you know, bring out more facts of this. But, you know, Jill and and Don are, are involved with, you know, the different lawsuits and the different um, uh, 
legal actions that are going to try to bring some sort of justice, but they're not the only ones. Um, City Council is also, Rochester City Council is also very uh, concerned about this, and they have enlisted a outside law firm to do an investigation into, you know, what happened. And I think it was, let's see, September 3rd, or was it September 2nd that the, the body cam footage was released? I think it was September 2nd. I think you're right. I, I, think, it was, I, was, I don't remember. I think it was September 2nd yeah. that yeah. the body cam the footage protest started. Yeah. Right. The body cam footage was eventually released to the family. And, you know, that showed a much more, you know, that showed a much more serious altercation. I mean, really, uh, in some ways, it, it's it's more upsetting than judge. George Floyd, although, I mean, there's that's not to say that George Floyd isn't upsetting. It is. All of this is absolutely terrible. But the outrage with this happening in March, George Floyd protests occurring, you know, sweeping the nation and this body cam footage showing, a, a, you know, a, also a terrible, a terrible homicide when they, they knew that it was a homicide was just kept under wraps. And, you know, there's internal emails at the police department saying, you know, you know, the, uh, a deputy, I think it's a deputy, not a deputy, a sergeant, all the way up to the, to the chief of police saying, you know, well, we don't want anybody to misconstrue, you know, what happened and to draw parallels because this was a very different situation. The outrage that, that swept the community um, when this body cam footage was released, maybe, maybe you can talk about that, Jill, because, you know, you were there um you know, just kind of what that was like. Well, there had been protests relating to the George Floyd killing earlier on and uh, through the summer in Rochester. There it was a very um, active and, and increasingly powerful group, um, Free the People Rock who, uh, and Black Lives Matter, who were um, organizing and coordinating protests in our community through through the summer. And then what happened is when word got out about the killing of Daniel Prude, people started gathering uh, at the public safety building. And actually I saw Don there that day. Uh, it was a rainy day and he had done the press, I think you did the press conference earlier that day, didn't you? Just earlier, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so people started gathering and I think the, the series of mistakes and misjudgment that we could see from the documents that had been released and from the recording and the suppression of the information was carried on uh, as the protests began because people were gathering, they were upset, they were peacefully protesting in the rain on that day. And we saw that uh, police were putting up barricades. They, uh, there had, I believe, been arrests that day uh, or already earlier and there were delays in releasing those who were arrested, even though under the bail laws of New York, they were entitled to be released. And then there was this very odd thing we saw that I, I even commented to Don about as we were standing outside when the police came outside the barricades to grab the backpack of someone who was just in the street there. They took his backpack and then threw it over a barrier uh, towards the public safety building. They stole his backpack and with the threat of force, since it was police officers who were armed. So actually... They kind of committed a robbery from what I could tell. But you could see that there was this immediate ant antagonism and conflict that was 
set up and that set the tone for weeks of protests. So through the weeks of protests, which I can talk more about in a bit, uh, there were huge conflicts. Press, uh, members of the press were subjected to force. There were pepper balls. There were those LRAD noises that were used during the course of demonstrations. There were tear, tear gas canisters and tear gas used. There was sniping with pepper balls from hidden spots on parking garages. It was appalling. It was a war zone down here at times. And well, I think, I, um, Don, you can probably, I'm sorry, go on. No. Uh, well, the New York Post reported that uh, 6,300 pepper balls were, were uh, shot in the first three days of protests. And that's an incredible amount of, of yeah, uh, pepper and- balls. And the first night, people—right—the <laughs> first night, people continued to remain at the public safety building and were protesting, and crowds were gathering. And there were people down there who had brought children, who had families with them, and there were several occasions when the police would start shooting without any kind of dispersal order, telling people you have to leave this area now, but just started attacking the crowd. Wow, this is. Um... You know, I mean, you've worked, you've had cases, you know, with with the police, opposite the police really for 30 years, both of you. And, you know, I also for not 30 years, but more like 15 years. So, you know, this is not a police force that is uh, unfamiliar. It's very familiar. And I have to say, I was surprised. Um, I, I was surprised that it got so so violent so quick um i don't know if i you know i haven't i haven't lived there in maybe five years i'm not sure if the culture has changed that significantly um did what can you know was it surprising to you that they went so aggressive i mean jill can correct me but uh and i don't know if you've seen anything different jill but um in in my 30 plus years uh, i haven't seen this level of thuggery by not just the Rochester Police Department. It was the first day and and continuing thereafter, it was a multi-agency response. Uh, County sheriffs, state police, police from other jurisdictions, they were scared to death of all these people out in the street and they behaved like like a scared dog would. You know, they snapped back. And, and, you know, I just haven't seen that level of, uh, of antagonism. It was almost like they're, you know, kind of sort of a, armed terrorist group. But the protesters, did they, were they armed that you um, saw? Not at, not at first. I mean, after, after the first violence by police, they started coming out with shields and umbrellas uh, to protect themselves. Uh, there were allegations that they, you know, some, some of them threw uh, frozen water bottles toward the police. Uh, or firecrackers. Um, you know, some of the videos that I saw showed the firecrackers coming from the other direction, from behind the police lines toward the protesters. But, I, it, you know, there's just, even if they did, and I'm not saying that they did, but even if they did, you know, officers are supposed to be trained to deal intelligently and responsibly, and like an adult, really, with that type of uh, action on the part of citizens, and they completely failed in this instance, and they're continuing to fail. 
Well, so let's let's back up just a little bit. So, you know, this incident happens in March and a month after the month after Daniel Prude is killed, the police officers do an internal investigation and they clear all the officers involved and then proceed to delay giving out the body camera footage to the family for as long as possible um, until, you know, they get the family got a lawyer involved, you know, to compel them to give this footage. Well, Since- but just, just to be clear, Mm-hmm. I mean, we immediately did a freedom of information law request for the body camera footage, which, by the way, went to the police officers union within three days of this incident. We didn't get it until just days before the press conference in September because they came up with cockamamie excuses that they couldn't release it because there was nudity in the video. Uh, they couldn't release it to protect the rights, got a kick out of this, of Mr. Prude. Uh, they couldn't release it for any number of reasons, but they didn't have any trouble uh, immediately sending it over to the police officers union to try to figure out how they could explain this and cover their actions. Well, and then they're trying to claim, the city's trying to claim that, well, the attorney general's office, because they got the attorney general's office involved, that they said, well, don't release the video. And there's this kind of who said what uh, situation going on. The attorney general's office is saying, well, we definitely didn't say that. Um, But the attorney general that is uh, working on this, uh, I know that she used to uh, represent the sheriffs. So... She isn't exactly the most, I mean, she's definitely pro-police. Um, so, you know, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what comes out of uh, any investigation into that. Well, just to be clear, uh, I talked to that attorney general, and I talked to the attorney general, and I talked to another attorney general who is responsible for a grand jury presentation against these police officers for possible criminal offenses. And in fact, the city's claim that the attorney general's office said they don't release this video was a lie. And the mayor has since said so. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Okay. Don't need to know anymore. The attorney general they tried to lay it on is actually someone who, in working with the attorney general's office, investigates police conduct and when there are deaths of civilians. And my, in my experience and conversations with her through the Bar Association and other contacts, she seems really committed to getting this right. Good, good. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, I always enjoyed her as a district attorney. You know, she was a she had a we had a good relationship. But it's just, you know, there's a lot there's a lot going on as far as um, a lot a lot of lack of transparency transparency, um, and some of it's come to uh, come to light, especially when they released um, internal police documents. I think what was most disturbing. Um, at least that's that I haven't uh, had the opportunity to review them because I'm not a part of it. But they reported uh, a notation where it seems that they were trying to frame this as Daniel Prude being a suspect of something when he wasn't. Um, and I think that's uh, I think that's a very uh, upsetting um, although not uh, totally surprising um, revelation. So um I think it's going to be, again, uh, interesting to see what comes out of all of that, because it wasn't until the body cam footage was released 
And until there was this public outcry and protest that any of the officers faced consequences for this, this death at all. And I think it, they wouldn't have faced any had there not been public pressure. Um, I don't think the mayor would have done anything. It doesn't appear that nothing appears to have been moving in a direction of accountability prior to these protests. Do you have any uh, different sense? Um, my, th- you know, one of my thoughts. Oh, sorry, Don, go ahead. Go ahead, Jill. You go. Well, one of my thoughts about a lot of these things is that the addition of body-worn cameras that are required uh, for police officers has made a huge difference. And I'm not sure where we would be right now if the body-worn cameras hadn't recorded what we saw, the, the horrific thing we saw with respect to Mr. Prude's death. Um, you saw a police officer, legs splayed, full body weight on him, holding him against the ground, and this naked man. Um, and without that, there could have been a story that would not have been contradicted because there weren't people out on the street at that time watching. Um, so the the cameras have been tremendous and, and the use of cell phones. This is one of the things we've seen with the protesters and the media now is that people are capturing what has been happening during the protests on camera. And so we have a real close up view of how things are happening. And, and some of what we've seen is just absolutely appalling. And it sort of seems like police are struggling with, you know, all of this information about their conduct coming to light. It's like they they repeat the same lies and spin that has worked without this information, even though now we have this information. And, you know, they're continuing with that. You know, it, you would think that body cam technology would change the behavior. Um, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't appear to have gotten all the way through. And I think that, you know, that's also contributed to why people are protesting and, and this tension, um, you know, that's erupting between the police and between the people that they're supposed to be policing, not just people they're arresting, but also citizens that are frustrated with this. Um, yeah, it's, re- it's remarkable to me that the body cam technology does not seem to change police officer conduct at all. It's like they can't conform their conduct to appropriate standards, even when they know a body camera is is running or a cell phone is running. So they still, like you mentioned before, after some of these protests have had, you know, their official disclosure about, well, this is what the protesters were doing and this was the police response. And you can see from the cell phone videos, well, that's not true. You know, that that didn't happen at all. And, And they just like refuse to acknowledge it seems like. I think there's such a culture of impunity in a way that police officers in this department and many departments across the country have gone unchecked and they never had to confront facts in real t- that were recorded in real time and have those facts presented to others in authority. In this case, we have the police internal reviews saying, well, the police acted just fine. They were following their, just following orders, I guess you might say. Yeah. And if, if they are following their policies and this is what we're looking at on camera, we're seeing this deeply inhumane conduct, then their policies are completely wrong. And, and there doesn't seem to be that recognition either. 
Well, I think one of the things. You go ahead, John. I think one of the things that poisons the well is the body of case law that has has grown up saying from courts to police officers that it's perfectly acceptable to lie. It's acceptable to lie when you're questioning suspects to try to get them to tell you the truth. It's acceptable to lie about why you're stopping a vehicle, for example, and you're not going to get called on it. So that just creates a culture of liars. And once you've done that, you know, it's hard to, to back up. Well, I read in an article that they interviewed Cedric Alexander, who was a former deputy police chief in Rochester, and uh, he had reviewed the body cam footage and, and said, you know, that, that the officer has mishandled that arrest and, and that, you know, he had worked on coming up with uh, procedures um, that uh, he's a he was is a clinical psychologist um, and that they should have uh, engaged in soft spoken conversation, de-escalated the situation and transported him to a mental health facility. They did none of that. And, you know, he left a, a, a playbook for the department to follow when he left um, left working for them. And, you know, they they didn't do that at all. And I think that, you know, looking at this case, it gives a lot of weight to the argument that this is that police are not an appropriate um, are not an appropriate response, governmental response to most mental health crises. And, you know, this movement to defund the police, you know, like the phrase, don't like the phrase, what it means is diverting some of the funds that go to uh, police departments and to put those in other social institutions, governmental institutions that are, would be better equipped to deal with it. I mean, I think if you look at this case, it is a absolute failure of the mental health system. In Rochester, he was he was sent. He was he was having a crisis, hurting himself, sent to the hospital uh, for evaluation. He was not medically treated. They just released him, so they didn't do anything. And then the next mental health response, because he's still in crisis, was the was the police encounter that ended his life. I mean, that is he was he needed help for a mental health crisis and you know, and he ended up dead. I mean, that they, I don't, I don't know how they can look at that and not say that that's a, that's a total failure. You know, he's 41 years old. It did not need to happen. Um, and there should be a reckoning, um, about how we treat, you know, how we treat our mentally ill brothers and sisters and citizens. It's just, um, and hopefully that is something that's going to happen at the hospital, um, you know, and also in government, um, because this just is this is just a terrible thing, and 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 seeing the police kind of put their haunches up, um, you know, is extremely disappointing. Well, um, I mean, I think part of the problem was from the family's perspective here, and from other similarly situated families' perspectives, in a circumstance like this, there's no one else currently to call. Right. They call nine one one, and nine one one doesn't have anyone else to dispatch. They dispatch the police. And the police are are accustomed to a more aggressive response than a mental health arrest requires. And, you know, if, if you want to boil it down to, you know, it's, it's terrible base, 
you know, Daniel Prude is dead because he wouldn't shut up when the police told him to. And he wouldn't comply, although there was no threat to them or to anyone, he wouldn't comply with all of their instructions and they can't tolerate that. So they then ramped up an aggressive, unnecessary response to him rather than you know, treating his active mental health issues. Well, there was just obviously no compassion when in watching it and 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 that is that's very it's very upsetting it's really it's really sad and disturbing um it doesn't make me feel um good about the police officers oh, this is just something that they were cool with yeah they're I mean, trained they're, they're obviously trained didn't have of course is the problem i mean it's it, the whole thing about you know the the officer's theme is you know i'm i'm going to make it home no matter what so, you know, any resistance is the enemy. And that's that's part of their training. Right. And I think that is Although the I argument. I, I think there's also a huge element of this, which is race, because Daniel Prude was black. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that if a white man in one of our suburban towns had displayed similar mental health uh, symptoms that the police would have responded very differently. Our police department has had a history of disparate treatment of communities of color. Well, the other and thing to look at, I mean, when you look at this video, if you look at the video, just imagine if the guys standing around were black, maybe wearing hoodies, maybe with saggy pants, and the guy on the ground was white. The criminal justice response would have been completely different as well in this case than it has been so far. Yeah. Now, Rochester's mayor has also come under fire. Um, she's claiming that she didn't know anything about this and, and, you know, that she was totally out of the loop and that her city attorney was the one who was, you know, keeping the uh, footage um, quiet and, and that she had nothing to do with that. And there's going to, there is an investigation, I think, um, as to whether that's true. Um, I believe there's also lawsuits done. Aren't there lawsuits that are looking into that as well or in yeah. amongst other issues? Yeah, that's, that's actually being investigated by a few different entities uh, and uh, the attorneys for Mr. Prude's family is, happens to be one of those entities. Lovely Warren is the mayor of Rochester. She, uh, this is not directly related, but I think that it is uh, important and interesting. Um, perhaps, uh, well, you can make your own your own judgments. She has been indicted, uh, criminally indicted, on two felony campaign finance charges connected with her 2017 mayoral reelection campaign. She was recently arraigned um, on that. Uh, one is for the um, first degree scheme to defraud. The second is an election office, election law office offense for illegally coordinating activities and expenditures. So it's a financial, these are financial, uh, allegedly financial crimes dealing with her reelection and a PAC that gives money to a candidate for office and should have been limited to a certain amount of money and, and instead supposedly um, bolstered her campaign with a, a much higher amount of money. So, you know, she's 
facing felony charges. If she's convicted, uh, she would have to be removed from office under state law. Um, she could face prison sentence, although that's probably unlikely. You know, there's a lot of questions about her honesty and her forthcomingness, you know, in this area and also, you know, in whether or not uh, she truthfully didn't know what happened to Daniel Prude, which is what she was claiming, what she's claiming. There was also a doctor that looked at uh, the the hospital um, and their, you know, their decision to Dr. Alpha Stewart, who was a past president of the American Psychiatric Association. And she didn't assess his case and make any determination about whether he should have been released or not. But she did note that there's unconscious bias that, it, you know, and prejudice that exists and can cloud clinicians' judgments and make it difficult for them to make the best possible decisions for their patients. And because Daniel Prude was a black man, um, he, black men like him are disproportionately likely to be misdiagnosed or mistreated or written off as a result of structural bias and unconscious racism. So I just thought that was important to bring out because, you know, and, uh, Back in episode two, we talked to Eric Teifke about the structural racism and inherent bias that exists in the court system. So I just wanted to bring that up because somebody like Daniel Prude is going to face that type of structural racist and inherent bias in every aspect of his life. And they compound on each other and, you know, can result in the tragedy that, unfortunately, the tragedy that he that he suffered. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up really for our listeners to consider as well, that it isn't just um, while we talk about the courts that, you know, all kinds of systems um, have those problems. And you can see the combination of so many failures of our systems and the bias of so many failure of so many systems in this one case. We have the the hospital system and the mental health system who failed to retain him if he was in that kind of shape. We have the police department that engaged in this kind of conduct. We have the city that then failed to share the information and tried to bury the information. We have the investigative part of the police department where they investigate their own officers, then saying everything's fine. And then we have um, perhaps even the medical examiner. There was pressure on the medical examiner, as I understand it, to uh, make findings that were more consistent with the justification for the police to have engaged in the conduct they did. So every step of the way, there was something going wrong. And largely, I believe, based on racial institutional bias. I believe there was even information disclosed that was supposed to be kept private by a a mental health provider along the way. But Don could more fully address those issues. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, And it apparently is standard practice in cases like this where there's questionable police officer misconduct to go back and examine very quickly whether uh, the story can be framed differently or modified. And the police department did contact the medical examiner's office and try to influence the finding of cause of death. Uh, the report that you mentioned earlier, Mary, was was modified, forged really after uh, Mr. Prude's death uh, by one of the officers directly involved, Officer Vaughn, who uh, then wrote in that Mr. Prude should be characterized as a suspect, as a way to justify, I believe, a more aggressive 
police response to him. So there is the there's the two I think two primary forms of bias, the the racial bias for one thing, and the bias between power and those without power. And you know, you had a, a perfect storm of both of those here. So let's kind of talk about um, what the legal system can do to try to hold these officers accountable. Um, there's the criminal aspect and then uh, there's lawsuits. So can we talk about the any potential for criminal charges first? Yeah, there there is now an executive order in New York State that directs that the attorney general's office is to investigate uh, any uh, police officer involved civilian death. Uh, this was made necessary because otherwise the investigating agency would be the local district attorney's office with whom the officers deal on a regular basis. And the local district attorney's office obviously needs the officer's testimony to be able to prove up uh, cases that they bring in other circumstances. Uh, so there's an inherent bias there, uh, and it would be almost a cliche that you know officers that are alleged to have been involved in a wrongful civilian death would be exonerated very quickly by local district attorney's offices because they were biased. They're on the same team. So the executive order now requires uh, the attorney general's office to conduct the investigation separately with a separate grand jury and to determine what, if any, criminal charges are to be brought, and if so, to prosecute those charges, not the local district attorney's office that, that has that bias. That's good. You know, John, one of the things that you're talking about is um, either not charging or undercharging police officers, which is kind of the opposite of what happens with our clients, right? Where they very yeah. often get overcharged. Right. So the charges can be manipulated one way or another by either the police officers or the district attorney's office. If they're, if the, those on the side of the police in the district attorney's office favor a particular result, favor perhaps not seeing a prosecution or a serious prosecution of a party, they can undercharge or at times present it to the grand jury and it can get dismissed. If they want to see someone prosecuted because the police want them prosecuted or they have a bias against them, um, they may overcharge because that use, it can be used as leverage to try and get a conviction of even a lesser charge because people know they're facing much more dire consequences if they go to trial rather than take a plea that's offered. So the use of charging really can be a reflection of, of bias as well. Yeah, there's a really dramatic example of this that just came out uh, in Buffalo, as a matter of fact, where a, a Supreme Court judge got into an argument with his neighbor about where the neighbor's car was parked, whether it was too close to the end of his driveway or some such thing. And apparently they'd been having ongoing problems. So the police come out to the scene. And of course, the body-worn cameras are running. And it looks like an episode of Cops, where the guy without the shirt on is going to get arrested. The Supreme Court judge comes out without the shirt on and is yelling at the cops and sticking his finger in their face. And his wife is as well. And eventually, a police officer takes the judge's wife to the ground and handcuffs her, at which time the judge basically tackles the police officer off the top of her. And it's all on body-worn camera footage. 
And as a result of that, there are no charges lodged against the judge. And the, the explanation was that the police officer uh, did not want to press charges. So, so he didn't get charged. Well, if Jill's client or my client were involved in that circumstance, assuming they survived it, uh, they would be charged with, and I know you wanted to talk about this earlier, so I'll segue into it here, obstructing governmental administration, one thing, resisting arrest. If the officer got hurt in any way, like his hand hitting your jaw, that would be an assault second, which is a felony. Uh, and there's, there's no way that an officer in that circumstance for one of our minority clients is going to exercise his discretion or be allowed to and say, well, uh, we, I, I just don't want this guy to be charged. Uh, let's just let bygones be bygones and we'll go on our way. So this obstructing governmental administration, in my view, is actually a misnamed offense. It should be actually named criminally pissing off a cop because that's what you always get charged with if you don't comply quickly enough with a police officer's direction, whether ultimately the direction is lawful or unlawful, uh, you get charged with obstructing governmental administration. And you know to further that, I, I, they always did this, but now we see it on body-worn camera, which is, which is you know, funny, not in a ha-ha way, but in a weird way. You know, I, and I've seen a bunch of these, Jill's seen them too. You know, they've got our clients handcuffed behind their backs normally, down on the ground, face down, either with a knee in their back or wailing on them while they're yelling, stop resisting, stop resisting. So, you know, well, he didn't stop resisting. So now he's charged with resisting arrest as well. And so they, they face this whole, you know, spectrum of charges. So it's sort of that I'm sure when Jill sees these or when I see these, uh, you figure, okay, this is probably an unlawful arrest. And the cops just trying to cover their ass pretty much. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of thing is standardly brought against our clients, but boy, if you're a Supreme Court judge, you can't manage to get yourself charged with anything like that, no matter what you do. Yeah. And, and sadly, we also see these assault two charges brought against um, our clients who are mentally ill. So we're kind of making a circle here, circling back, but um, clients where families do call for assistance and the family is then uh, you know, they reach the police, the police come out, there's someone who's very obviously in some kind of mental health episode. And if during the course of it, a police officer gets hurt, it doesn't even have to be that the, per the person strikes them directly, but um, the police officer gets hurt, they'll face a felony charge of assault in the second degree when the family was just trying to get them help. And I've had those cases, other people in my office have had those cases. Yeah, the police officer steps off the curb and sprains his ankle. Well, he's uh, responding to this call. That's an assault, too. He would, you know, but for the call, he wouldn't have sprained his ankle. All right. Well, let's talk. Let's um, let's move into, again, what can happen civilly. So there's so civil suits um, are happening. It's in, in state court. Um, what are the goals um, of those civil suits? And, you know, if you can speak well, to any of that, Don. Well, there there are a number of different civil suits that can be brought in either state or federal court. Um, one of the types of civil suits uh, 
is being brought by protesters who suffered significant injuries at the hands of police during these protests. We have people, for example, who were hit in the face with tear gas canisters, you know, broke their noses. Uh, we have a couple of people who are going to lose vision in, in one of their eyes. Uh, we have other people who have broken kneecaps, who have, you know, sprained uh, arms or legs uh, as a result of responses. And, you know, the, the unfortunate thing is we don't really have any mechanism by which to conform official behavior other than to hurt them financially. So each of those lawsuits is going to have a financial penalty to the city and perhaps the county or any other agencies that were involved in these aggressive responses toward protesters with, a, with an eye toward conforming their conduct. The other type of civil suit in federal court is called a 1983 action. It's a denial of your civil rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness without being interfered by the government you know, for, for an unlawful reason. Uh, that type of suit allows the possibility of an order from the federal court uh, that would result in systemic change, training, and hi training hiring, uh, uh, supervision, uh, changes in uh, overall response to, number one here, uh, mental health calls, for example. Uh, perhaps mental health workers should be sent even, either along with police officers or primarily on each call of that nature. Uh, responses by police to mental health calls or to protests that challenge the official action. Uh, just because you're challenging the official action that has taken place, whether it's police action or other action, that does not give police officers a lawful basis to beat you up or to arrest you or to violate your rights otherwise. We have the right to be heard and to voice our disagreement with official action without retribution by those in power. So. You know, we, we've had a long history in this community of trying to conform official responses uh, to citizen actions. We had, there was a great report that was published in 1979, uh, which had a lot of great recommendations, which didn't get implemented, it did not get implemented because it didn't have the force of a judicial order. Well, the lawsuits give you that kind of force, that judicial order that says you must comply or else. So that's you know really one of the, the actions that's more interesting to me is the ability to perhaps engineer some long-term change. Yeah, I think that would be, obviously that's that would be in a, uh, something that could you know protect everybody, protect the community and would be better. So hopefully um, you know, that's that's a wonderful way to use the law. Um, Jill, you've uh, prepared uh, some trainings on processor rights. And I think if we could move into that, I think that'd be really uh, beneficial because, you know, there's been there's been lots of protests around the country. And I think that this aggressive police response 
um, is something that's not unique, unfortunately not unique to Rochester. And so uh, I'd love to discuss, you know, kind of the rights that protesters have and also the risks that they they may face, you know, coming up to with these uh, aggressive police tactics. So first, if we could talk about the protester rights. Sure. So um, the rights that we generally talk about uh, for protester rights are derived from the First Amendment. And you think of the United States Constitution Bill of Rights as being this kind of ancient document that, you know, how could that possibly have relevance today? It was ratified back in the 1700s, but we deal with them every day. And the First Amendment includes the right to um, be free from establishment of a religion, but also uh, it has the right to free speech, the right to uh, have people peaceably assemble, to petition the government, and of course, freedom of the press. So these are the rights that we're looking at when people are protesting. And there are cases that have been interpreted at the state level and at the um, federal level in the Supreme Court about these rights. So although we have these rights, they're not unfettered there can be what are described as reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions on these rights. And so sometimes that happens by legislation. For example, um, there was a curfew order issued in Rochester during the course of the protest this summer, and uh, that was challenged in court, but that was an order that limited the ability of people to assemble after 11 at night until I think it was five in the morning or something like that. I'm not sure of the exact time. I have the order somewhere. Um, and, or there may be just, if it's deemed that a, an action or something going on is a threat to the safety of the community or safety of individuals, it's an immediate threat, um, it might interfere with traffic, then cases have said that even without that kind of curfew order, there it can be restrictions on the conduct and the speech. So the tricky part is, what is the permissible action and and what is not? And that, that's what's fought out in courts all the time. And ironically, there was a case in 2014 that talked about the um, kind of the sanctity of our sidewalks as a way of speaking out in a public forum. And that was a case where that was protected because it was uh, basically protesters at a Planned Parenthood. Um, and that's where the Supreme Court is and was. But in any event, we, we want to make sure that people have the right to speak out, and yet we see protesters being attacked. And so that's where these, these rights are coming in conflict what, with what are claimed to be reasonable restrictions or claims that there are safety, uh, safety implications. So in addition, there are um, due process rights under the Fifth Amendment and the Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment of the Constitution. And then you have the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. And that comes into play with some of these cases. Well, we saw it that day, the first day of the Daniel Prude protests when the police came over and grabbed that guy's backpack. I don't know if you can hear my dog shaking near me. I hope not. Um, but so we saw that. But what we see now is protesters being taken into custody when the bail laws say that for these charges, they should not being held for hours at a time, um, being told that they may not be released because they don't have identification when our statutes don't actually require that um, identification be produced for these charges that people should be released on, although they can require it. And then people have been providing identification and being told, well, that's not enough identification. So we have those kinds of 
rights protecting us from not being unlawfully arrested, uh, from not being held unlawfully. And unfortunately, in real time, we don't always get to exercise them. So the day that I was with Don out there, I was trying to get people out of custody who it seemed were being detained for a very long period of time on charges they shouldn't have been in on at all. And eventually they were released. Uh, so we have the challenge is that, unfortunately, as these things are happening, it's really hard to get the police to stop in real time. And that's where you wind up in these lawsuits that tend to be, sadly, the most effective way. There is an effort in Monroe County to have a police accountability board for, uh, for Rochester City Police, but they have fought that in court um, because they resist accountability. So those are some of the rights. I don't know, Don, if you want to add anything to that. No, that's that's a very good point that we have those rights, but exercising them in real time can be difficult. Uh, they're the guys with the guns, you know, so we have to conform their behavior in other ways. Well, I was reading um, your, you know, your presentation and I, and the, the crime of unlawful assembly kind of jumped out at me because it's not anything that I ever addressed when I was handling, you know, criminal cases in court. And it seems like an incredibly subjective statute. And, you know, it's, a, and so that seems like that's really going to come down to the courts, you know, and the judges and how they interpret that. But, you know, it, it sort of seems like the police get to decide when they want to totally unilaterally when it's an unlawful assembly, even if there isn't, you know, obviously if there's a curfew order, that could be something you could be violating. But, in, it, you know, it's much broader than that. Well, as you know, um, having been a criminal law practitioner and for those who, who aren't aware, um, generally criminal statutes, the, the laws that say you can't do this or that, have something called a mens rea, which is a state of mind that has to be proven, and what's called an actus reus. It makes me sound a little smart, maybe, that there has to be some kind of criminal act. And so when we're looking at these statutes, very often we have to look at the mens rea. And in unlawful assembly, um, which is a misdemeanor in New York, um, the statute says that a person's guilty of unlawful assembly when they assemble with four or more other persons for the purpose of engaging or preparing to engage with them in tumultuous and violent conduct likely to cause public alarm, or when being present at an assembly which either has or develops such purpose, he remains there with intent to advance that purpose. So the mens rea there, the state of mind, is that intent to engage in that tumultuous and violent conduct. So it seems like it would be a pretty hard thing to prove for peaceful protesters. And yet there was one day when a number of the protesters were arrested and they were initially going to be charged with unlawful assembly. And ultimately they were not. Um, and I don't know, I had some conversations with people that day and I don't know if it, they then looked at the statute or they just kind of went to it on their own and said, well, we're really never going to be able to prove this. But that was just one of those kinds of statutes where they were overcharging, as we talked about before, to silence people who are trying to exercise those constitutional rights we just talked about. Well, and I think, you know, you, we've heard a, there's been a lot of reporting about, you know, uh, Attorney General Barr, the, the, the U.S., uh, you know, um, attorney, um, attorney general, you know, coming up with and encouraging prosecutors um, to charge sedition, things that we've just really never seen, um, and also encouraging, you know, 
aggressive, really aggressive prosecution of protesters, especially ones that he deems Antifa, you know, which is a, this huge category that, you know, probably most protesters could fall under, you know, his definition of that, um, which I think is really concerning, concerning. And there's a, been some federal prosecutions out of, out of these. Um, there's, I think one, I don't know if there's more than one, but there's an article on one. Um, yeah. If you want to speak about that, Jill. Yeah. So there's someone here charged with um, sedition, I believe. And and if you look at the statute sedition, it's two or more people um, in any state or territory or any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspiring to overthrow, put down or to destroy by force the government of the United States or to levy war against them or to oppose by force the authority thereof or by force to present, prevent, hinder or delay the execution of any law of the United States or by force take, possess any property. So you're looking at federal building stuff there, I think. Um, that was some of the focus. But the other piece, so you can also see the, the mens rea there. Now, one thing I want to caution your audience about is that what happened in the case here is that police started, uh, there was uh, someone who had gone to Facebook and posted something on Facebook uh, about creating a Molotov cocktail. And so it might be, um, you know, it's like the parents thing. It's all in good fun until someone gets hurt. Right. Um, so someone might have been putting that up on their Facebook page or joking. But I suspect that some of these kinds of content sources, um, for example, Molotov cocktails, things like that might actually be kind of bait for people who are gathering this for just citizens who are gathering this information, reading it, maybe posting it. They're angry. They're expressing things. Well, guess what? We talked about mens rea a few minutes ago, the state of mind that's required to prove a, a charge. And it doesn't have to be that they can prove your state of mind based only on what you did at that moment. So if someone posts something on Facebook, I want to kill somebody or something, you know, do something that can be used to establish the mens rea. And the police, the law enforcement agencies are gathering this information. Right. So be very careful what you post on social media. That is the takeaway from that, um, you know. Also, maybe not Molotov cocktail recipes ever. Uh, that would be good. Um, yeah, but that's but it's concerning. And you, yeah, they could be, you know, yeah, looking for those, looking for those, uh, search those types of searches. You know, I mean, there are there is a very scary and very real rise in militias. I don't know if it's really something that's in in coming into Rochester, but you know, we saw. In Michigan, you know, the the FBI arrested a bunch of um, men in a militia who had a, a very real plot to kidnap the governor and attack law enforcement. Um, so, you know, that seems a much more appropriate uh, use of that type of prosecution um, for those guys. But, you know, it seems like it's out there for, you know, more aggressive, regular protesters as well. So you should be aware of that. Um, what types of things, if, you know, people are going to protest, what should they do to prepare um, and have in mind, you know, if they're going to a protest? Obviously, peaceful. Any suggestions? Mm -hmm. 
Um, well, don't bring anything with you that you don't want the police to be taking from you. Uh, and that can be any one of a variety of things, but certainly not any illegal drugs or weapons. But do bring identification uh, because here people are getting detained for an extra long period of time when the police are claiming the identifications inadequate. When these protests started, I was kind of naive because people would ask me, should I write my phone number or someone's phone number on my arm? And I said, oh, don't be ridiculous. This is Rochester. That's, you know, not a thing you have to do. But we're so accustomed to not knowing people's phone numbers anymore. And the police grab people's phones and then someone doesn't know who to call when they've been arrested. So yeah, you might want to write your a phone number of a friend or family member on your arm if you don't remember those phone numbers. Um, if your phone has photos or content you don't want the police to see, don't bring the phone with you. And if you are stopped by the police, the first thing you should be asking them is, am I free to leave? Because if they don't have a sufficient basis to hold you, they got to let you go. So if you say, am I free to leave? And they say, yes, fine, see ya. <laughs> if they say no, ask what you're being charged with. Now, they may not answer these questions, but if you can, try and remember the times that you've asked these questions, because then if they hear people were held and then eventually released, you can see how many hours you were held, most likely unlawfully. And then you can call someone like Don and say, is there something we can do about this? Um, if they ask, can I search your phone? Say no. They need a warrant to search your phone and unless they have consent. So tell them, no, you cannot search my phone. Um, you don't want to re resist physically or with words that reflect an intent to resist. Don't get in the way of someone else's arrest. But if you do have a phone, stand back and record what's going on. The police might try and stand in the way and you can't push them out of the way, but try and record it. And don't just save the recording to Facebook because the Facebook recordings are disappearing. So you want to um, download them or save it to the cloud outside of Facebook. And um, if they're using excessive force, start screaming. I mean, if the officers, we actually had someone here during one of the protests, the officers were making it so that that person could not breathe. And that person was screaming, I can't breathe. And there was a member of the press there recording it. My arm can't move any further if they're trying to cuff you, but narrate it in real time and loudly so that the crowd can see it. And Don, I don't know if you have any other suggestions. No, those, those are good. It's kind of like the checklist for when you're going hiking by yourself in the Adirondacks, you know, saying, saying good things to remember about your own personal safety. Um, you know, uh, bring water, bring snacks. You might be out there for a while. Um, you know, if there's there's a case, at least in New York, I know that this isn't only in New York, but um, you, you have the constitutional right, you know, if you're just walking along and a police officer says, come over here, to ignore them and walk away. Um, you know, if you if you push that right, they might come get you, but you know, you're within your rights to do that. Um, you know, you don't want to be engaged in violent behavior during protests because that's an exception to your constitutional right. You have the right to peacefully protest, but not to violently protest. And, you know, some of the statutes are pretty squishy on that, that unlawful assembly statute, where it talks about tumultuous behavior designed to upset the public. Well, if you're protesting, and you're not engaging in tumultuous behavior, or you're not upsetting the public, you're probably not doing a very good job. Um, so there are issues with some of these statutes because generally, of course, 
they're written by you know persons in position of authority and generally those folks just don't like to be challenged so they write it in a way to limit that oh and the other thing is um Molotov cocktails almost never work so <laughs> I've, I've had a long experience uh with them through my clients don't don't bother uh going down that road yeah it's absolutely pointless. I mean, there's there's a there's a case out of I think New York City with two attorneys in their 30s um, who uh, they are the attorney general's office is going uh, going full bore at them um, for Molotov cocktail throwing at a police car uh, and they're facing incredible uh, charges and I mean not just like not just like of course we can't be lawyers anymore but you know we're not going to see freedom for decades. Uh, so that's, that's very scary. Did you see any type of, um, federal presence or was this all state, um, state police that you, that uh, you're aware of in these? No, in it, these it's, it's federal too. Um, lately, uh, the people who have been arrested are being questioned by U S marshals. Um, you know, which is more troubling, uh, because of, the sedition charge, for example, uh, and you know things along those lines. I mean, who knows? I mean, the next step for Bill Barr, if he's around for a while, is uh, you know maybe to encourage charging treason. Um, you know, treason as a federal offense is one of the few offenses that still carries a death penalty. So you know that's a pretty good intimidating factor to get people to be quiet and sit down you know, that sort of thing. So um, it, it's a multi-agency. I've seen I've seen every agency, I think. Um, Rochester Police Department, uh, sheriffs, uh, and other law enforcement agents from uh, other counties, uh, as far away as, as Clinton County up near Plattsburgh. Uh, uh, there's also um, other agencies as well that have been involved. So it's, it's pretty uniform. Uh, in the response. Well, another statute, then, no, so, sorry. Um, I was going to say just that another thing to be aware of is that if there is a dispersal order issued, at that point, you've got to make a decision. And that is whether you intend to engage in civil disobedience, which is has been a very effective tactic through the years, through the decades, or whether you are not in a position to potentially get arrested at that moment, um, perhaps because you have uh, you go to school and your your college is going to somehow um, make that something that will get you in trouble with the college. All the colleges around here have been really supportive of their students, or perhaps we've seen some people who have been fired from their jobs when they've been arrested. So you've got to make that decision. I'd suggest that you think about it in advance because you don't want to be making it on the spot in real time when there's a dispersal order issued. Yeah, that's definitely something um, to think about ahead of time. And also, if you're going with a group of people, to have a conversation with them as well so that you kind of have uh, a plan and can back each other up, you know, and you can kind of stay together. That's a, a way to be safe. So one last uh, thing, just, you know, since we're talking about treason and sedition, um, that, you know, makes gives me concern if you're if we're going to be facing, if protesters are going to face under a continued Trump administration bar administration, aggressive protesting prosecutions is felony murder, uh, which exists in New York and exists in other jurisdictions. Um, and that's when, you know, 
someone else kills someone, but you're part of, uh, you know, a felony that's being committed, you could also be charged with murder. And that would be obviously the, I think, a worst case scenario um, situation that could happen. And, you know, I just want to people to think about, you know, as bad as it possibly could get so that we can take steps to protect ourselves um, in protesting, keep it peaceful, get away um, when, when necessary. Um, and to protect our rights, but not silence our voice. Well, do you have any further thoughts um, on anything that we've discussed? Any any last messages that you want to want to give to anybody, Jill? Except that I, I just really support and uh, admire those who are protesting in the Black Lives Matter movement. Don, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, I, I do too. I mean, I think a lot of the attention that's been brought about and a lot of the changes that have happened so far have been a direct result of the Free the People Rock and Black Lives Matter organizations and their consistency with maintaining uh, the protest. We're going to be heard and we're not going to go away. And you have to address this. You know, far more effective than generally anything I do in the court uh, is, is what they do out there in the street in, in engineering change. And I'm just, I'm in awe of them, really. Yeah, I, and Mary, I, there is one other thing that I, that I wanted to add, um, and it's ironic that I didn't mention it, and Don didn't either. But if you're arrested, ask for a lawyer. <laughs> oh, funny! Yes, I, I too could have said that. Um, yes, ask for a lawyer. a lawyer. <laughs> yes, you have the right to remain silent. Yeah, remember that. Well, I agree, and uh, about you know protesters um, and being you know the most. Uh, the, the quickest force uh, for change and good in society. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to have this discussion so that about, you know, protecting their rights and to how they can protect themselves, because it's, it's even if God willing Biden wins and, and we can uh, kind of change course a little bit from where we're going, protesting is still going to be something that still, that still is in a very American form um uh, to press for change and that's going to be needed, you know, to continue on. So I want to thank you both for all the work that you do um, and for coming on and sharing your experience with our audience. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to source material referenced in this episode, because unlike corrupt judges and politicians, we do our research. Listen, subscribe, tell a friend, and be sure to judge us by rating and reviewing. Post-production by Joe Thompson and theme music by Avery Munger.